Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Tafira Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard and this is the Blog Talk Radio show for Tiferet, the journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.tafaritjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal, which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is the wonderful, prize-winning poet, translator, and essayist, Jane Hirschfield. Hirschfield is the author of seven collections of poetry and a book of essays, and co-editor and co-translator of four books. Her work has been frequently anthologized in places such as The Best Spiritual Writing, The Best American Poetry, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. Hirschfield has been the recipient of numerous honors and awards and fellowships for her writings and translations. In fall 2004, she was awarded the 70th Academy Fellowship for Distinguished Poetic Achievement by the Academy of American Poets, an honor formerly held by such poets as Robert Frost, Ezra Pound, William Carlos Williams, and Elizabeth Bishop. And in 2012, Hirschfeld was elected the Chancellor of the Academy. The Christian Science Monitor calls Hirschfeld's poems an evocative mix of control and wildness, stunning beauty, and unseen forces. The Washington Post says they brilliantly portray even mundane experiences as if they were nothing short of revelation. Hello, Jane. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I'm awfully pleased to be here talking with you. Oh, I am so happy to have you here tonight. Um, I would love to start by having you tell us about the title of your new collection, Come Thief, and um, who exactly is that thief, and why are you engaging in this unusual request of inviting the thief in? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the, the thief is could be many things. Um, One of the wonderful things about metaphor is you don't pin it down to one possible choice amongst many. But I I do have to admit that the poem, the the, the title poem and the book as a whole are fairly time-haunted. And so if I had to say uh, who's first among the many possibilities of the thief, I would have to say time itself. Uh, transients, the fact that um, time brings us everything in our lives and then it promptly takes everything away from us. There's also a story, um, an old Chinese story, that, that whose image sits behind this idea, which is there's a hermit living in the mountains. He has almost nothing in his little hut. He goes out to gather a few edible weeds for dinner. He comes home. He discovers he's been robbed. 
And uh, the only thing that hasn't been taken is a very heavy cast iron cooking pot, which he promptly picks up and runs down the dark road, uh, shouting, wait, wait, you forgot this. (laughs) Wow, that's fabulous. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I love that. Well, I I love the the huge cosmic with which you look at the themes of transience and time in the collection. And, and you really do it in this strange and beautiful way that offers a sort of comfort and even joy, I feel, in accepting impermanence and the inevi- inevitability of death. And I wanted to see if you could read us a couple of poems that deal with the subject matter and maybe talk about them a little bit. Um, I was thinking of The Promise and Perishable, it said. Wonderful. Um, Can I start with, uh, I think the most direct one on this, on on what you've just been saying is perishable, it said. So I'll begin with that. And maybe I'll just say first, um, this poem uh, arrived as a kind of epiphany while sitting on my window seat. Uh, So everything it describes kind of happened. I mean, not everything of course but i really was sitting there in my window seat eating eating some cottage cheese and i saw the perishable you know eat by date on the <laughs> cottage cheese container and had the experience which this poem uh describes so here it is perishable it said perishable it said on the plastic container and below in different ink the date to be used by the last teaspoon consumed I found myself looking, now at the back of each hand, now inside the knees, now turning over each foot to look at the sole, then at the leaves of the young tomato plants, then at the arguing jays, under the wooden table and lifted stones, looking, coffee cups, olives, cheeses, hunger, sorrow, fears, these too would certainly vanish without knowing when. How suddenly then the strange happiness took me, like a man with strong hands and strong mouth, inside that hour with its perishable perfumes and clashings. So, you know, usually when you realize you're going to die, it's not such a joyful moment. <laughs> um, but it actually, there there was this quite odd sudden realization, um, oh, everything's going to vanish. Me too. Um, and, and you know, part of the great mystery of human life is we are, so far as we're able to know, perhaps the only creature who is so continually aware of our own mortality. And yet we have to live absolutely full, engaged, saturated lives Knowing, knowing about time, understanding yeah. that, you know, whether tomorrow or a thousand years or 10,000 years or a hundred thousand years from now, almost every trace of what we've brought into the universe will be quite gone or at least indistinguishable and certainly not identified as being us. Um, and, and somehow that was, that was quite a cheering thought for me. Um, you know, the, <laughs> I love it. I- I do. I just love that poem, and I, I love that that aspect of it, which is 
present really through the whole collection. I mean, this this particular poem exemplifies it maybe the best, but it, it's present through the whole thing. And that um, that moment of looking at the backs of the hands and the insides of the knees and the soles right. of the feet, it's just it's such a great moment in the poem. It's you know for everything that's implied, and um, it it kind of takes. For me, hearing it, it takes me from a feeling of childhood wonder to this inevitable aging and death all in the same moment, you know, and I think, you know, that's where the joy comes in partially. Thank (laughs) you. It feels magical. Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the things is I sort of hope that under... You know, these are all, the the joy is kind of hard won. I mean, the fact is that just like anybody else, I'm not actually so looking forward to dying. Um, (laughs) But but I do think that a lot of the role that poems play in our lives, or certainly that they play in my life, is, you know, how do we face the unfaceable? How do we navigate the unnavigable? Um, how do we find some way to feel and think when we are looking at the unthinkable and the unfeelable? And, you know, you can either run into a granite wall and be stopped or you find some path. And for me, a poem like this is a... Uh, I think it was Robert Frost who said that poetry is a temporary stay against confusion. And every poem is provisional. Every poem is temporary. And yet for the moment that the poem is doing its work in you, you are able to say yes completely to the the full spectrum of fate, including the hardest, the worst, the most frightening. And, you know, I tend to, um, when I talk about the poems in public especially, or the poems themselves perhaps, they 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 tilt at least a fraction towards the joy and the chipperness or the radiance or the acceptance, but I don't want anybody to think I walk around the world in a continual state of blissful acceptance. Um, because <laughs> right. that would, and I- you wouldn't need poems if you if you did that. <laughs> right, and that's that's very clear actually in the poems. So. The, well, the, you. you know, the, it is that both of those elements are present. Um, that what you're embracing really is sometimes uncomfortable for you. There's discomfort there. It's even though there's joy, even though there is that comfort, there's a different kind of discomfort happening at the same time. The comfort is offered by the acceptance and the joy, but there's like a, a more primal discomfort underneath it that is still there, right? <laughs> Right, so so we can ice skate very fast over an abyss, um, but that doesn't mean the abyss doesn't exist. So I, I think you understand my poems very well. Uh, so should I read the you. other one? Should I read the promise? I would love to hear it, yes. <laughs> okay. The promise. Stay, I said to the cut flowers. They bowed their heads lower. Stay, I said to the spider. Who fled? Stay, leaf. It reddened, embarrassed for me and itself. Stay, I said to my body. It sat as a dog does, obedient for a moment, soon starting to tremble. Stay, 
to the earth of riverine valley meadows of fossiled escarpments of limestone and sandstone, it looked back with a changing expression in silence. Stay, I said to my loves. Each answered, always. Mm, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love it that the the leaf is wiser than the speaker of the poem in a way. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Everything is wiser than the speaker. <laughs> right. Well, end, and the, the other people. speaker perhaps learns her lesson. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. Well, I wanted to ask you also, one of the things that we're interested in at Teferit is how spirituality and art can inform each other and serve similar roles for the individual and for humanity. And I wanted to see if you could talk a bit about what your experience of that has been in your own work. Yes. Well, I, I much of my life uh, has been... Much of my adult life has been a process of trying to um, uncage and undomesticate uh, body, speech, and mind, as they as they call it in Buddhism, uh, from what we're the boxes we're taught to put ourselves in. And I think that spirituality at its best and art at its best, they both unlatch us from ordinary possibilities into extraordinary possibilities. They they take us out of conventional response and allow us to be much more comfortable with largeness, with mystery, with awe in the literal classical sense of that, which is something not only beautiful but also terrifying. Um, I also think of both spiritual practice and art as summonings into a more concentrated and deeper presence than a lot of Mm. our harried contemporary lives uh, tend to to be lived at. Um, we, We are continually these days multitasking or in a rush or aware of the email we haven't answered or people who have cell phones, which I don't, you know, something has just come in on the cell phone. And I think it is absolutely necessary for our deeper happiness, wisdom, sanity, um, ability to raise children, ability to bring peace to ourselves first and anybody else after that, that the very first thing is simply to be able to be deeply in this moment as it is. And for Mm. me, both art and practice have have done that. Mm, Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I would love to hear another poem. <laughs> and, okay. Um, it's actually my. This is my favorite one in the collection, and um, it it really brings out a quality that to me has become more prevalent in your latest book, which is kind of a compassionate and comic awareness about the human condition. Um, so it's the one about the frozen egg. <laughs> oh, I would be very glad to read that. <laughs> Thank you. 
And again, it began, you know, maybe I lack imagination that so many of my poems begin in the literal, but once again, you know, the, the event actually did happen, and, and this was my response to it. <laughs> it was a refrigerator a running extra cold. <laughs> Uh, the egg had frozen an accident. I thought of my life. The egg had frozen an accident. I thought of my life. I heated the butter anyhow. The shell peeled easily. Inside, it looked both translucent and boiled. I moved it around in the pan. It melted. The white first clearing to transparent liquid, then turning solid and bright again like good laundry. The yolk kept its yolk shape. Not fried, not scrambled. In the end, it was cooked. With pepper and salt, I ate it. My life that resembled it ate it. It tasted like any other wrecked thing, eggish and tender, a banquet. Wow. I love that poem. (laughs) Every time I read it or hear it, I just love it more. (laughs) That's just wonderful. You know, one thing, you never know what other people's favorite amongst your works are. Most of the time people don't tell you. And it just just delights me that this is your favorite poem in the book because I wouldn't have known it would be anybody's favorite poem in the book. Um, I know. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's so whimsical. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, it really is a very literal description. You know, who who knows what would happen if you cook a frozen egg? You know, I certainly <laughs> didn't know what would happen and and this is exactly what happened and 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 um you know, it wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. But I think, you know, the whole thing turns on the fact that it was wrecked, it was weird, and it was a banquet. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> That's right. Really, this is what it feels like. <laughs> you know, um, we, we, every moment, if you could see it that way, you know, the, the most disastrous moment, you're alive, you're there for it, you're in this world, you're a human being, you're getting to feel whatever you feel, it's a banquet. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> and I love, I mean, I love the whole poem. I love the fact that, that you ate the egg, <laughs> which a lot of people wouldn't have done. But it, it's that curiosity. It's the same kind of wonder and curiosity that that I feel drove you to look at the backs of your knees and <laughs> the tops of your hands. But that thing about it, being a wrecked thing and a banquet and eggish and tender. I just want to take those last two lines and post them up on my mirror and on my rearview mirror in my car because Aww. it's so much about what life is, you know, to me. Suddenly I'm seeing it so. as somebody's epitaph. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe it'll oh. be mine. <laughs> Wow. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, you have seven collections of poetry, and um, what things have you noticed about your own poetic evolution through the publication of seven seven collections, and what do you think about, you know, who you've been as a poet and where you'd like to go next? Hmm. So I I think I we my my first book is fortunately the only one which is out of print and impossible to find and I think that's a fine fate for my first book. 
Um, so I really began to be myself in my second book, which is of Gravity and Angels, that came out in 1988 from Wesleyan. And there, there are a couple of poems in there, especially one of them, uh, the poem for what binds us. I still will open readings with that poem. It has stayed as with me as the day that that I wrote it. Um, but I probably have changed in every book. I feel as though I've changed and evolved. You know, there are there are certain poets who. They do something, and they are always recognizably themselves. And I mm-hmm. think in many ways, some of the greatest poets this is true of, you would never mistake an Emily Dickinson poem for anything except an Emily Dickinson poem. Um, my friend Kay Ryan has sounded like herself from the beginning, unmistakably herself. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes I think, gosh, you know, maybe maybe that kind of consistent voice would be um, a, a, a sign of some kind of excellence which I will never approach. But then there are other poets of which I, I am that kind where it just keeps changing, it keeps shifting. And part of this is a restlessness in me to find new ways of being, new ways of... And, I, you know, please don't think any of this is... I have, Kay's poem, every poem is new. Um, Dickinson, every poem was new. I'm not saying this as some either or reflection, but just there has been a restlessness in me which has always looked for a new way of writing, a new voice, push the perimeters, find a different style, find a different technique. So various things over the years have come up. There has been a standing invitation ever since that second book came out and I had a chance to kind of look back on it and see what it was. Something in me thought, you know, Jane, these are these are good lyrical poems, but maybe you should get a little weirder. Maybe you should get a little stranger. <laughs> and ever since then, there has been something in me which has just sort of been asking the muse make me odder without making me incomprehensible, you know, but just keep finding an edge and step a half inch over it. Uh, Open a window a couple inches wider than is more comfortable and see what's there. So in the fourth book in Lies of the Heart, there's a series of uh, five spell poems and they work in a diction that I never used before and never used since. But I really loved doing it, and I found something. And for what they were doing, there was no other way to find it except to use language and grammar in a way distinctive from any way I ever had before. In the more recent books, there have been series of very short poems, which are actually freestanding individual poems, but out of respect for the trees, I have turned them into series, so I call them 15 pebbles in one book and 17 pebbles in the next book, just so that I wasn't asking each piece of paper to hold only three or four lines. Um, And that has been a marvelous exploration for me of how can you say something uh, very brief oblique, evocative, how much can you hold in how little? And this is something that Japanese poetry does in haiku and in tanka, but I'm not trying to write haiku 
or Tonka in these poems. I'm trying to write some new Western hybrid that I'm finding for myself out of a deep familiarity and a deep love of the very short poem forms that have existed all over the world, the history of aphorism in the West, or Sappho's fragments, and haiku, and tonka, the four-line Chinese poem. You know, there's something in me that loves uh, Blake's uh, world, Eternity in a Grain of Sand. Uh, How much can you fit into how little seems to me one of the great uh, joys of working with poetry. And so I've worked in that form in recent years. The future, I don't know, I, because I, I never have an intention. I just I discover where my poems are going by writing them. I know I'm kind of interested in the last few years some quality of the surreal has caught my poetic radar some kind of statements that are not logically possible and yet still hold meaning. Um, so, And I don't have any of those poems within reach to read you one. Uh, but, but, you know, one of them that I can think of uh, begins, you know, once I was seven Spanish bulls on a hillside, something like that. That's wow. not exactly. But, you know, that's a completely <laughs> odd thing to say, once I was seven Spanish bulls sleeping on a hillside. Um, and, yes. and something in me wakes up at that. You know, I, I, I've been reading some of the um, South American poets with great joy again, and and I loved what they were doing, and it made me, I think, go, oh, yeah, there's things you can say this way that cannot be said any other way. And I think that's the goal of a good poem. It's always trying to say something that could not be paraphrased, and yet once it's in the poem, it can be returned to. Uh, it, I was kind of giggling when you were answering that question and talking about the surreal because I had actually written in the margin of the collection as I was reading it, is it my imagination or is she getting a little more surreal? <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. So, well, once I, again, thank you for being such a good reader. <laughs> oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you for, for saying that. And I'll tell you which poem it was. It was the oil and vinegar poem, how it had that just it's jumped to the image of the donkey at the end. Oh, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> would you like me right. to read that one? Oh, I would love that. Yes, thank you. Okay, so, so people know what we're talking about. Great. Vinegar and oil. Wrong solitude vinegars the soul. Right solitude oils it. How fragile we are between the few good moments. Coming and going unfinished, puzzled by fate like the half-carved relief of a fallen donkey above a church door in Finland. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. And I noticed that in several poems, too, that it took a surreal turn. And and what a wonderful, wonderful comment about solitude, too. Um, I noticed that in, in so many of your works, in Nine Gates, you made that wonderful statement about Um, You said part of any good artist's work is to find the right balance between independence, born of a willing solitude, and the ability to speak for and to others. Um, And I love that. And I see that 
um, also in your poems in the balance of the subject matter because there are the poems that we've been talking about that are these quiet observations and quirky individual perceptions. And then there are the ones that are more about um, social and political issues like, um, well, like the inventive visible hovels, right? Because, uh, okay, so, and it's about um, a a dictator, right, who tortured people and then died without being... um, Exactly. So it is, that poem was triggered by the death of uh, the Chilean dictator Pinochet, Augusto Pinochet, who died in his bed, perfectly comfortable. But I mm. think behind it was also, as as is behind, there there is a very um, there there is a thread of of uh, commentary on torture that runs through several of the poems in this book, and I think it was my extraordinary. Um, just acute, painful impotence at uh, the Abu Ghraib uh, revelations that, Mm -hmm. you know, torture was being done by my country in my name. Mm -hmm. And I've just found that absolutely unbearable. Um, and, And it... It was something that comes into various poems in this book in different ways, and it's not like there's ever a poem that says this is about Abu Ghraib. And right. you know, this particular poem was, you know, as I say, it, it's its first cause one could say was Pinochet, but its its deeper cause was Abu Ghraib. Um, mm. Or perhaps one shouldn't make a list. You know, the fact that human beings do this to other human beings anywhere ever is so unbearable that once it's in your attention it never leaves well that's right and um the um the images are so compelling (laughs) just absolutely compelling It, it it kind of it could enhance to know specifically what's being talked about, but it doesn't. You don't have to know. I mean, it comes across. You know, one right. of the images that I'm thinking of is I, I, can't, I don't have the book right in front of me, but I, I think it was something about. I can read the poem if you want. The, uh, that would be great. That would be okay. great. The, the one about the skin. Yes. Yeah. The inventive <laughs> visible hobbles. The inventive visible hobbles. The cigarette. The battery. The board. What is done is done through the body. What can be stopped is stopped with the body. Yet an innocent elbow and fist, ankle and foot, touch the innocent shoulders and spine, anus and breasts of others. An innocent tongue, licking innocent air as it speaks, gives orders to hands that could be slipping the skin from a peach. Loud beyond hearing, a hell where physical flames might interrogate an apprehendable spirit, its thigh bone and cheekbone. But no, the crime goes free. It dies with the dictator's head on a downy pillow. Wow. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very bitter. The and the <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And, you know, it's like, where is the agency? It's not in the hand. The hand could be doing anything. And yet I don't actually believe in, you know, um, spirits after death going to some hell where they'll be punished. And somewhere in between those two ideas, concepts, whatever one would call it, images, there's some reality and I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of it. And so the poem is a question. You know, is it the body? Is there something outside the body? Where is agency? And underneath that is the pain of this has happened and somebody died on their pillow even though they caused it to happen over and over and over again. Yes. Um, That's really, really compelling. (laughs) And it's hard to look at these things, um, you know, so it's, you know, kudos to you for writing about it because it really is, I think a lot of people would like to to turn away and not think about it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and um, it's hard to just really look at it in the way that you had to in order to be able to write about it like that and get that kind of feeling. Thank you. And it's also hard because I don't actually believe in... You know, the things would not be undone if Pinochet had been executed for them. Right. I mean, that's right. That's the. De- you know, I'm. I, the poem isn't a poem looking for punishment or revenge. It's a poem looking looking at rather than for anything. I guess. Right. Um, right. Do you feel that? Hmm? Oh, go ahead, please. <laughs> Oh, I was just going to say that you know nobody ever thinks of of me as a poet if they're if they were putting together an anthology of political poets or poets of witness in America. I don't think anyone would would think of me. But throughout my books, if you look, there have been poems looking at these kinds of things. There, there's a poem about the Rwandan genocide when it was going on. Um, written again, you know, a newspaper account, and and I couldn't, I couldn't not think about it. Uh, there, there's a poem about the Velvet Revolutions in Eastern Europe. There was a poem after Indira Gandhi died. Um, there's a poem about uh, one of the, one of the uh, so many uh, wars uh, between the uh, the Middle Eastern countries. Uh, there's a poem about uh, a little tiny uh, thing that no one remembers anymore, uh, the invasion of Granada. Nobody ever thinks about it. But <laughs> but somehow, you know, the, and again, most of them aren't labeled. Uh, they don't say, you know, this is 1984, this is what's behind it. But right. I'm very aware of... Uh, you know the the Indonesian tsunami lying behind one poem, and uh, the Scud missiles lying behind another. Well, you know, I think for me with your work, what I notice is that um, whether it is a, a poem more of of personal observation or it's a more social poem, all of your poems kind of lead to the same place which is a a richer understanding of what it means to be human and so i i don't think i don't want to categorize you in a way as oh spiritual or political or anything like that it's just you know it it leads me to understanding humanity better does that make sense 
it not only makes sense, it's what I would most want. Thank you. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was thinking as you were talking about the poem that um, in Nine Gates, I actually quoted this today in social media, you said the words of a poem are not an end, but a means into an exploration without limit. And um, I wanted to see if you could talk about that a little bit because I think it kind of speaks to what we were talking about with the poem being more of a, a question. Yes, yes. I, I think we feel if poems, um, if a poem or a person or a statement is uh, pat and thinks it knows every possible answer and ties things up in a little bow, uh, there is a there is a falsity to that and a stifling of richness and a stifling of understanding. Whereas if a poem holds, you know perhaps a hypothesis, perhaps a lot of, you know, very clear statements, but also still some question, some mystery, some acknowledgement of uncertainty and unanswerability, then we feel like we're in the terrain of the actual ground that we both stand on and can't ever stand on. Um, mm -hmm. The world is very multiple, and our hearts have more than one feeling in them at once. And I think what 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 I want of art is something that clarifies without simplifying, so that you feel clearer even though you don't have an answer. Wow, um, I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> clarifying I, without simplifying. Yeah. Uh, and I think about that a great deal. Um, there, there will be, I don't know when yet, it's been accepted, but there's no pub date and there's no title. Uh, there will be another book of essays about about poetry. And um, one of the essays is actually titled um, Poetry and Uncertainty. And uh, another one okay. is about poetry and paradox. And another one is about you know poetry and how it transforms us. And every single time I, you know, I come to, the more I think, why do we need poems? I think we need poems because they are magnets for looking at the world in more than one way at the same time. They mm, don't domesticate us. They allow us our strangeness. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. We are about to run out of time. I can't believe it. I feel like we've only been talking for five minutes. <laughs> um, and I don't even have a clock, so I've had no idea <laughs> the time list together. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> well, before we hang up, do you have, I know you've got the, the publication of essays coming up, which a lot of people, I'm sure, are anxiously awaiting now. Um, are there any other publications or events or anything coming up that you would like to announce or a website that you'd like to send people to um, to find out more about yes. your work? So so the best website would be, um, and, and this is an odd place to send people, but uh, it, it's barclayagency.com, uh, B-A-R-C-L-A-Y-A-G-E, 
A-G-E-N-C-Y dot com forward slash uh, Hirschfield. And they have an appearances link that, that has all of my upcoming appearances. And, of course, things keep being added all of the time. There's also, for those who are on Facebook, somebody has an author's page for me on Facebook, which is very good. It's not me. Um, I'm not actually on Facebook, but I, I let her know when I'm going to do things, and she and she posts things, um, usually not terribly far in advance unless it's something like a writer's conference workshop that people would need to sign up for early. Um, but she does an absolutely beautiful job with that, and, and you know anybody who wants to keep up with me, that's probably the simplest way to do it. Some friends of mine actually just bought uh, com back from the person who kidnapped it, uh, but all it does <laughs> oh, is tell no. people to go to the other places. <laughs> it was extremely sweet of them. Somebody went through Wikipedia, and, and anybody who didn't already have their own name, they took it. And and they they held them for ransom basically, and mine was held oh, for ransom for probably gosh. ten years before my friends decided to buy it back for me. <laughs> oh my gosh! Now those Isn't are good friends. <laughs> it was the writers community on the well, which is the earliest uh, online community that existed, and they're still going. Um, so <laughs> well, <laughs> we've all known each other a long time. Uh, yeah. And and you know future events I'll be doing um, uh, I'll be giving readings and lectures at the in in the Napa Valley uh, end of July beginning of August um, I'll be doing events in New York City in October I doubt that too many of your readers are going to come to hear me in South Korea in October or at Zion National Park but I will also be in both <laughs> of those places. Um, and and you know it's I basically just um, I I feel like a pollinating bee. I go many places and I read poems or give lectures and I feel very lucky to be able to do that. Oh, that's such a lovely way of looking at it. <laughs> well, it has been such an incredible pleasure speaking with you, and it was a real treat to get to hear so many poems too. So, thank you. So much. Well, thank you, Melissa. You're you're fabulous, and I I so enjoyed the conversation and the chance to be uh, with the, the ferret community as well. Oh, thank you. You're, <laughs> I heard someone talking. You're fabulous, fabulous too. I just love your work, and um, it was just such a delight. And I hope you have a wonderful evening, and I hope to talk to you again soon or interview you with another book in the future. Yes, we will stay in touch, I hope. Thank you so much. Okay, you too. All Good right. night. Bye. Bye-bye. And before we close, I'd like to let our listeners know that you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of Teferit Journal at our website, www.teferitjournal.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the new Teferit Talk book. It's a collection of interviews from the first year of Teferit Talk Radio. And also have a look at the special invitation from Hay House Publishers to join authors Gabrielle Bernstein, Chris Carr, Nancy Levin, and Reed Tracy for a writer's workshop in New York City, June 22nd to 23rd. Our next interview will be July 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with poet Doug Anderson. 
We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work. Until then, goodbye.